the CPHI podcast series. Welcome to the latest episode of the CPHI podcast series. This month, we have a special feature episode to mark Rare Diseases Day. That's the 28th of February. Rare disease is an oft overlooked field of medicine, one which is rapidly gaining ground, which is certainly a good thing, as rare diseases affect around 300 million people globally. By their nature, rare diseases are incredibly difficult to research and develop medicines for, but that just makes this all the more urgent to fulfill this unmet need for rare disease patients. In today's podcast, I'm joined by Rachel Smith. Rachel is the Executive Director, Global Head of Rare Diseases at Paraxel. Rachel brings more than a decade of experience in every development phase of rare disease and cell and gene therapy clinical trials to her work with Paraxel's rare disease clients. So we're very lucky to speak to her today. Rachel, thank you for joining us. Please, could you give us some background to Parexcel and the work that you do in rare diseases? Yeah, absolutely. So Parexcel is a clinical research organisation. So we don't directly develop drugs ourselves, but we help sponsors and pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies from all over the world take their product from their first in human clinical trials all the way to sort of the marketing authorizations and marketing applications. And then once that's in place, we support them with getting payer and HTA approvals and assessments as well. So really sort of the end-to-end services when it comes to drug development. Specifically for rare diseases, we have been doing more and more in the rare disease space. And we've recently launched Rare Disease Centre of Excellence, which is my role is, is heading that up now. And that infrastructure has been put in place just because we've got some incredible expertise across the industry. We've got ex-FDA, ex-EMA regulators that work for us that have been reviewing orphan drug applications and so bring really really fascinating and integral insights to everything that we do with our partners. I think we've done over a thousand projects in rare diseases in the last five years. So very significant. And our focus is the patient, really. We're we're all about putting the patient front and centre of everything that we do. And rare diseases is exactly that. It encompasses that core value, really. Absolutely. Yeah, you have to be um, very patient-centric when you're looking at this, don't you? Okay, so could you please explain in a bit more detail why the market for rare disease drug research is so small and why drug companies often don't prioritise this this research in this area? So it's really interesting because the rare disease drug market is definitely growing. So we saw around 50% of the drug approvals in the US last year were orphan drugs. I know we'll talk a little bit more about why that is in a moment, but the challenge really is it's just not been profitable in the past. We're talking very expensive drug development processes for a very small number of patients. So it's something that, although there's over 400 million patients worldwide with a rare disease, you can get rare diseases themselves that only have 20 patients total that we know about. And so developing a drug and going through all that process that costs millions, if not billions of of dollars often to get a product to market for 20 patients has just really historically been a viable business model. And that's why it's been such a struggle to to get any interest in this in this industry, in the rare disease patients. And it's it's really important because these rare disease patients often have no other 
option. Only 95% of patients actually have no approved treatment on the market right now. Um, So that only leaves 5% of patients that actually have something available to them. I'm a rare disease patient myself. I'm very lucky to be in the 5%. But most of those drugs that are on the market for those patients are, they're just, they're not that effective. So they manage symptoms and they, they definitely have benefit, but it's almost like with my condition, I've got congenital um, pernicious anemia. So I receive B12 injections every every two to three months. And whilst that's very good at increasing my B12 levels, which is important for regulation of pretty much everything and the primary cause of all my symptoms and all the issues that you have with pernicious anemia, it doesn't alleviate a lot of symptoms like chronic fatigue. So it's almost like, and this was approved in the 1950s. So it's almost like, you know, oh, we've done that now. We've done pernicious anemia. We don't need to do anything to improve the lives of these patients. They've got something that will work for them and that's it. And that happens a lot in the rare disease space. You focus on one specific area, something gets approved, and then that's that's done because it's then a lot more challenging to get a drug through the approval process um, if there's already something out there for them. That's really interesting, yeah, because you'd think that in terms of how much medicine has advanced in the last 70 years, you'd think that there would be something that you could find to make lives of patients so much better. So I know that the US FDA have a new designation, well, relatively new designation that they have been using to help try and encourage companies to work on rare disease drugs. So that's the orphan drug designation. Could you explain a bit about what that is and how it does help? Yeah, so that's really timely, actually, because we are having the 40-year anniversary of the orphan drug legislation. So this was in the sort of the 1983 when this came into effect. Prior to that, there were only 38 drugs approved for rare disease. So if you think at the moment, a study last year counted the number of rare diseases, distinct rare diseases, at 10,800 plus, and now we we only have 5% of those with approved therapies. And yet in 1983, we had 38 drugs approved for rare disease. So it was an impossible situation. It was getting to the point where rare disease patients were being completely left behind, completely you know, disregarded by the industry, by regulators, as well as um, in you know, pharmaceuticals. The only real work was being done in the academic setting with, you know, it's historically been short on funds. Um, grants weren't focused towards rare diseases because they were focused towards things like HIV, cancer, you know, very important indications, but um, indications that affect sort of mass populations rather than very small patient numbers. So this legislation really was landmark. Without it, we wouldn't be where we are today. So right now we have over 700 drugs and biologics approved for rare diseases. So we've gone from 38 uh, to 700. The majority of those actually have come in the last 10 years. Um, So there's been a real uplift and that's purely because the rare disease or the drug development process takes that long. So this Orphan Drug Act came into play all of a sudden due to the incentives that they're offering like market exclusivity, uh, tax relief, tax rebates, exclusivity when it comes to working in the indication itself, so in a specific disease. Um, All those things meant that drug developers were all of a sudden very interested in developing drugs for rare diseases, which was fantastic. And it really saw that uplift. And right now, I think it is becoming more of a crowded market. And so 
whilst the Orphan Drug Act is amazing, and we've got something similar in Europe as well with Orphan Drug Legislation, which is just about to be updated as well, and offers similar incentives for drug developers, including things like accelerated drug development pathways, accelerated approvals, more contact with the regulators. So quite often, you know, you'll have one or two meetings with them in drug development process and you'll submit your marketing submission, but you'll have limited contact. In orphan drug development, you get to speak to them along the way. So you get to say, this is what I'm thinking, this is where we're going, what are your thoughts? And to make sure everyone's aligned and you're not getting any nasty shocks when you get to the point of submission. So there's so so many benefits, but we also have a long way to go. You know, we're still at only 700 orphan drugs approved as of middle of last year. So we, you know, there's 10,000 plus patients that don't have something approved for them right now that manages their condition. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of people. And that sort of leads on to my next question, really, in that as you're one of the leading supporters of drug makers in the rare disease market field, why is it so important on a patient level to focus on rare diseases? So it's what I mentioned earlier, it's that rare disease patients were being left behind. So there's a mantra in the rare disease community that no patient should get left behind. Every single patient should have access to clinical trials as a care option, particularly when there are no approved products that manage their condition uh, effectively. Um, And every patient deserves to have a life, to have a reasonable quality of life, to have their life extended if 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 that if they have a life limiting rare disease, which you know these patients often do. It is all about the patient. We can't emphasize that enough. You know, if you have a patient with a rare disease or are a patient with a rare disease, we quite often work with parents and, and caregivers because 50% of rare diseases impact children. So if you imagine having your first child and being told that that child has a life-limiting, life-changing rare disease. And actually, one of our patient ambassadors, first in industry role at Paracel, Stacey Hurt, she's a a rare disease mum and her little boy, uh, or not so little boy actually, because he's turning 18 this year, has an ultra-rare disease. He's one of only three known cases in the world. And he has a chromosome one abnormality, which means that he is affected globally. So every single body system is affected. He's non-verbal. He can't mobilise at all. So she's a full-time caregiver for him. And just hearing her stories and the challenges she faces day to day, and yet still, you know, rocks up to work. She absolutely smashes it out of the park. She really brings home that patient message to our customers, to regulators when we have those conversations. She can bring that patient angle. Um, And it, it really highlights why... It's so important. If we if we don't put the patient first, then what are we in this industry for? Yeah, that's on a nice personal level as well. That's it's so important to get that across for sure. So when you are actually helping drug companies to get their medicines to the market, what what stages do you have to go through in terms of clinical trials and things like that? And what challenges do you see in this process and how do you overcome them? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to use the example of the kind of the rarest of the rare. So these really small populations, often the clinical development process is is much accelerated. So because we've got such small patient numbers and there's such a high unmet medical need, we will have maybe one or two or three clinical trials to get a drug to market. And to put that in context, 
in a regular oncology indication, you would have maybe eight, 10, even 20 clinical trials before you even submit to market to get a huge amount of data that's has statistical significance. So what we're dealing with in the rare space, um, we're dealing with extremely small patient populations. We might only have a few patients per country. So again, geographic dispersion. So we're often looking at ways of overcoming that cross-border enrollment has something that's really sort of popped up and is a bit of a hot topic at the moment of how we can move patients, particularly Europe is a great example because for healthcare, you can move, move patients around to expert hospitals within the European reference network. And the same in the US, they have a, a, an agreement with Mexico and Canada where Canadian and Mexican patients can receive healthcare within the US. So we're looking at those systems and thinking, how can we capitalize on that? Because it's very expensive and very logistically challenging to open clinical trial sites in multiple countries when you might only be getting one patient. So you've got these huge, huge setup costs for one patient. Um, So how can we overcome that whilst minimising the burden for the patient as well? Because obviously if they're travelling, that increases their burden. Um, So that's a huge challenge is how do we get, how do we find those patients um, you know, when they're spread and, and um, quite often that's through patient advocacy groups and working with umbrella organisations and um, expert hospitals that know these patients exist and know where they exist. And then once we find the patients, how do we engage with them and move them into the clinical trial in a way that's going to work for them? And often we we might have a gene therapy treatment, for example, where we, we move a, a, a child from... Um, Spain to the UK for treatment and then they would go home and they'd have some some of their follow-up visits would be by teleconference telemedicine um, home nurses coming in and doing some assessments just so they don't have to keep traveling back for every single follow-up appointment which is super important for the for the safety of the patient Mm. on top of that because you don't have much understanding around the, the clinical care of these patients you might have inconsistent standard of care. So one of the biggest things that we do when we design a trial is we design it to focus on how would this product work and how would it be administered in real life in a hospital setting. But if you're dealing with a disease that's relatively unknown, you know, the the, the everyday doctor, the everyday physician doesn't know anything about it or it's very limited information, every single healthcare system then has come up with their own way of managing this patient and it might vary from patient to patient as well so designing a trial with the end goal in mind which is to use it in the standard of care setting is really challenging because you have to think about trying to find the sites that manage these patients in a similar way um, just so that you can get consistency of data to be able to take to the regulators to even get to that stage but then how are you going to implement it afterwards so it's 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 not easy. And then, you know, you've also got things like lack of validated biomarkers and endpoints. So when we're talking about, again, I'm going to use cancer as a, an example. When we're talking about cancers, you can do blood tests and you can show certain markers that are higher in your blood, which shows that the cancer is there. Um, and then those markers disappear as you treat the patient and they hopefully go into remission. So you can see that as an effect. But for rare diseases, quite often we don't know. No one's no one's investigated, no one's done any research into what those biomarkers are, what they could be. So a lot of the time when we're designing these trials, we're also choosing endpoints, which is what we use to measure whether the, the drug is successful or not. 
we're using endpoints that are completely non-validated and may never have been seen by the regulators before. So we're trying to validate this way of looking at these patients to say, yes, there will be improvement or yes, there will be some change in their status. And then also say, yeah, and our drug also had an impact on this. So it's it's a fine line between sort of cherry picking and finding something that really works for the patient. And quite often we, we look at natural history studies or real world evidence when we're not treating a patient with a drug, but we're trying to learn more about their disease and the progression of their disease because there's limited or no data out there at all. And we need to understand. And a great under, a great example of that was a program I worked in in Canavan disease. Canavan disease is a horrific condition that ex, um, impacts very young children. So we have babies that they present relatively normally when they're first born and they start to meet their milestones, development milestones, and then all of a sudden they'll start to regress, um, so to go backwards. Um, they become sicker, they can't lift their head, they can't verbalise. Um, eventually they end up requiring a feeding tube because they can't swallow. Uh, they have seizures. It's it's really a, a horrific condition and it's ultimately a death sentence because these patients don't survive past the age of 10 years old um, if they survive to 10. And then for Canavan disease, there's one or two patients per country. So we, we ran a natural history trial because we, we just didn't understand and we could only find three experts in the world, or at least in the Western world, that knew enough about Canavan disease to help us design the clinical trials. And we ran a natural history study with them to find the patients and also to understand more about their disease. And then because there were no disease-specific questionnaires, quality of life, endpoints, biomarkers, that natural history study helped us to identify what those could be. We had theories um, from the science, um, but we needed to look at them in patients. So we did that through this natural history trial. And then the final piece I would say is, is that rare disease is very heterogeneous. So one patient with the same condition may present very differently to, to the next patient. And that happens in normal indications as well. But when you've got things like cancer and you've got so many patients with lung cancer, for example, non-small cell lung cancer, you'll see groups of patients that behave in the same way. In rare diseases, you've got that issue, but you've only got maybe one or two. So Stacey, her, who I mentioned earlier, her child, Emmett, um, presents very differently from, we know there's a child in the UK and there's a child in Italy. And the child in the UK has completely different set of symptoms and, and issues to, to Emmett. So it is, you know, really, really challenging. You've got all these sort of plates up and spinning in the air and somehow you've got to find a path through to be able to get robust data that we can take to regulators and we can take to payers and say, look, this drug improves quality of life for these patients and is safe enough um, to be able to improve the quality of life. So please, can you approve it, review and approve it? It sounds like a real uphill struggle. There's so many factors to consider, isn't there? But it must be really fascinating work when you're looking into all of that, especially looking into all the the, um, the history of it and things like that. It must be very interesting and hopefully you can use it to make a difference for sure. So thinking about that as well in terms of geographical differences and things, um, do you see any socioeconomic disparities and things like that when you're looking into the rare disease occurrence? And does this have an impact on the provision of medicine? Yes, 
um, in, in short, yes, in every in every aspect. So these clinical trials that are being done in the red disease space, we often have to go to specialist centres. Those specialist centres will be in the middle of cities. And so patients in cities will have access to them, whereas patients in rural areas will not. So you get disparities with that, but then you also notice that a lot of these specialist centres are not in lower economic areas. So you have socioeconomic disparities where patients who have low economic status might not be able to afford to travel to a hospital site to receive expert support and help. Then you've got things like in the US, we've got healthcare insurances. So the disparities between patients on Medicare and Medicaid and those patients who have access to private healthcare is absolutely huge. You've got rare diseases. There are some diseases that have particular higher prevalences in certain ethnic groups, like familial Mediterranean fever, for example, which is a fever flare-up disease. And that really impacts, so that that's, has a high prevalence in Middle Eastern and Ashkenazi Jewish populations. So we find a lot of these patients in Israel, in Turkey, in the Middle East, in which case we, we go to those countries to, to find these patients and to run our trials. But then you also get conditions that are global and have no ethnic link uh, or, or racial link whatsoever. And we know that there is, you know, it's representative of the, of the percentage of the population. So, for example, the general population for Black African Americans in the US is 12.2%. We know in regular clinical trials, um, only about 9% of those patients participate in clinical trials. So you've got a big disparity already. And those patients tend to trust their healthcare professionals and the healthcare professionals will be the one that flag clinical trials to them. The rare disease community is slightly different in that we've got patients who they don't even trust the healthcare professionals because quite often the healthcare professionals, you know, they've gone through a long diagnostic journey. Um, so we call it the diagnostic odyssey where it takes seven to eight years on average to get your diagnosis. And you would have seen a ton of specialists, a ton of physicians, gone to a ton of different clinical trial centers or, or hospitals to even get that diagnosis. So by that point, you know, and I hear from patients all the time, I got my diagnosis and then I sat there in the room whilst the physician had Google up. You know, I was looking at the condition and they printed off something from um, from a website to, to provide the information to me. So actually these, these healthcare professionals don't know much about my condition. Um, and so they trust and reach out to the community instead, their rare disease community, their own community. So it makes those populations like the Black African community, like the Asian community, so are very close-knit anyway, it makes it even harder to access those patients and to speak to them and educate about clinical trials and, and engage, really, and find out what matters to them. So that is a real challenge and, and something we are really actively trying to address. We were actually, we, we ran a LUPA study where we received an award for diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. because we managed to reach 38% diverse and inclusion targets set by the FDA. Um, the FDA had set a 20% target. Most clinical trials meet 12%. So um, we did pretty well there. But it's it, it really involves a lot of extra investment for our clients. So a lot of extra investment and money to come up with these strategies to actually outreach to patient communities and lots of bespoke strategies as well. So it adds cost to the rare disease pathway, which is unfortunate. I mean, that's, again, another just another layer, isn't it, of uh, what makes it so difficult, but again, why it's 
that's so important. Do you think that more could be done by industry leaders and regulatory bodies and things to encourage more research and to facilitate more trials and just make it more accessible to the patients that need it? I think a huge amount more can be done with accessibility. I would say we've come a very long way. So um, you've probably heard of the phrase patient centricity. Um, It's the sort of phrase that patient advocates and and patient advocacy organisations and patients themselves just sort of raise their eyebrows and roll their eyes at. It's a bit of a broken promise. That's my feeling. It's it's a broken promise. We we told patients we would put them front and centre of drug development and we haven't done that historically. We are starting to move in that direction. So you've got patient-focused drug development guidance coming out from the FDA. You've got the FDA and the EMA actually inviting patients to come and speak to them now. They are starting to take actions out of those discussions, although, you know, would love to see more being done rather than just listening, you know, taking those actions and and, and putting them into effect. Or if things can't be done for, for whatever reason, sharing that information back with the patient um, patient advocates who are driving all of this. I think we can design our trials with the patient in mind. So this week I'm actually doing an experience called Life in a Day where I am having a tiny snapshot into the window of a patient with FOP. Um, I won't try and say the, the full name of it, but essentially it's a condition where if soft tissue gets damaged, it can cause a flare up and that results in bony tissue being grown. And, and the experience that I will be starting with is I'll be a patient who had uh, a neck injury at the age of six years old. So my entire neck and will be fused, um, which that I, I believe I'll be receiving a neck brace to, to mimic that. Um, my mobility is going to be restricted because I would have had various injuries throughout my childhood. Um, and these these patients often have breathing problems later in life um, because their ribcage fuse, fuses together. So they can't breathe out normally. They have to breathe from their diaphragm. Um, so I'm, I'm doing that just to, we're doing a, a clinical trial in FOP at the moment and just to give me a small window into how difficult it is for a patient to go through that every day and then add a clinical trial on that when we're asking them to come into the clinic, have a, a long day of assessments where they are going to get extremely tired, you know, have to travel, have to think about the consequences of that. FOP is the example. These patients are extremely high risk of um, if they receive, if they have a respiratory illness because they could get some calcifications as a result of that. And so there are a lot of things that you have to consider when designing these trials and I think just bringing patients into the discussion because something that you know we often have clinical trials in the CNS therapeutic area where we're doing lumbar punctures and we're taking samples of CSF now we know that having a huge needle into your spinal into your spinal cord and um, to extract CSF is going to be an uncomfortable painful high burden procedure but what was really interesting I was speaking to an ALS patient they also have this assessment frequently done where they have little needles, um, you know, like acupuncture needles, so not big ones, put into their muscles and their hands and, you know, around their body. And then little electrical currents um, go through them to test the reactivity in the muscles. And it really is an important test. It gives us a lot of information about how mobile these patients are and what's going on with their muscular progression. But this patient said, you know, it doesn't hurt. But if I have to have this done again, it takes about 45 minutes you know, every doctor doesn't want to believe the other doctor's assessment of it, so wants to run their own. And she said, if I have to do this again, I 
will only do it if I can electrocute the doctor myself. <laughs> if he does it, I'll do it. So um, she she was uh, she's fantastic anyway um, in the ALS community, but she just really highlighted that some of these these assessments that we look at and go, yeah, it's fine, you know, unless you've been through it. Another example was having a patient with a, a rare eye disease sit in a room for an hour to acclimatize and then another hour to do loads of eye assessments in the dark by herself. You know, again, it's, it's well, you know, we're not causing pain or discomfort, but actually it's not comfortable and it's not fun and you're, you're in the dark and it's miserable. And so all these sorts of things, we just need to put our, ourselves in the patient's shoes. And the best way we can do that is by bringing the patients into the conversation when we're designing our trials, when we're designing, you know, what are we even targeting? Are we targeting something that's going to make a difference to you? Again, an, an example of that is Warfarin syndrome where you have a, a series of, of conditions that are linked together. One of them is diabetes. And they said, you know, oh, we'll target the diabetes for a drug. The patient community said, actually, diabetes is fine. We're well managed. You know, it's, it's easy to manage that. It's everything else. It's the, it's the um, retinopathy of the eye, the, the sort of loss of vision that is our main issue. They go colorblind, so they eventually see everything in gray and then they lose their vision. That's what they wanted sorted. They were fine with the diabetes. So really talking about the patient. So what do we want to target? You know, what do they want us to target? What assessments are going to be too burdensome versus what assessments do we need to do to show meaningful impacts? There has to be a balance. Um, and if we can't do something that a patient's asked us to do, we need to, we need to tell them. And we need to tell them why. It's having an open conversation and a dialogue, not just a one-off. Patients come into a room, we have that conversation as a focus group, and that's that's it. We don't do anything else then. So yeah, that's that's what I would really hope that we, we start to do as an industry more and more and more and regulatory bodies as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you've got reams of examples there for each aspect, and it just shows how how much you know it is needed um, to be uh, yeah to be looked into and supported. Um, so, final question: How are you hoping in the next few years the industry, this field of medicine, will change and hopefully improve patients' lives? Well, there are three things. The first is I would really hope that we start to keep proper databases at national and international level for rare diseases because patients are repeatedly asked to go through registries and natural history studies like that one I mentioned earlier. And we don't do a lot of open source sharing of that type of data, which to be honest, you know, isn't proprietary. So it, it should be shared to reduce the burden on the patients and give us and our, you know, the the um, the governments across the world an idea of what the true unmet medical need is for their healthcare systems. Because just for example, the UK government and the European government still say there's 6,000 rare diseases. They haven't updated those figures for the last 10 plus years. The FDA have just said that they are going to update to 10,000 plus. And that means that we can truly have an idea of what that unmet medical need is. So that's the first thing. The second thing is continuing with the incentive programs because, you know, I mentioned earlier that the rare disease space is becoming very crowded. The cost of these products once they get to market is in some cases completely extortionate, you know, really, really high. It's justifiable, particularly when it's a one and done cure, like the gene therapies that Bloomberg Bio have brought out as an example. They are a one and done cure. They're very, very high cost, but the cost of those for one off versus lifetime of care for these patients 
is justifiable. However, the more of those therapies there are in the market, the more unaffordable it becomes. So there needs to be more incentives for companies to continue to work in that market if they're going to struggle to get payers, so healthcare systems, HTAs, to review and approve those so that they can actually be provided to patients. And the final thing is we need incentives in place to look into uh, drug repurposing. So there are so many drugs out there that could potentially have a positive impact on patients, but for health insurance reasons, because of the way that healthcare is set up and the restrictions on off-label use of, of certain products, we really struggle to look at drug from a scientific mechanistic perspective and go, this actually could have benefit for this patient or this patient population or this disease. And it would be very cheap to do, it'd be very cheap to repurpose these drugs because you're just looking at a different indication. But there are no incentives to do it. So it's not profitable. So there's no incentive to do it. And it's really only, again, patient organisations and academic centres and, and research centres, hospitals that are driving this type of research. And there's only so much that they can do without industry taking a step forwards. Right now, there's no reason for industry to do that. Thank you again to Rachel for joining me on this latest episode of the CPHI podcast series. I'm so looking forward to following their work at Parkcell and hopefully we can see some real changes in how we address rare diseases as an industry in the near future. Thank you all so much for listening and please don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter on CPHI Online for more similar content and the latest podcast episodes. Thank you for listening to the CPHI podcast series. For pharmaceutical news, webinars, events and more, visit cphionline.com.